0: They know I'm black. Should they? Mom and dad, my uh, my black boyfriend, will be coming up this weekend, and I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. <laughs> you call me Dean and
1: you're hungry, my man. So, so how long has this been going on? This thing. <laughs> <laughs> you smoke, Chris? You should have Missy take care of that for you. Hypnosis. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. <laughs> Now you're in a sinking place. I do know Tiger. Is it true? Is it better? Black is in fashion. Wow. There's too many white people are getting hurt. So. No, 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 no. Get out. Get out! Get Out is a Black maid horror film with a Black male lead, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who is in an interracial relationship with his white girlfriend, played by Allison Williams. And all seems well when he goes to visit her family at their rural home, but something is amiss. The Black servants, yes, Black servants act very odd and he starts to get the feeling that something really creepy is going on, and boy, is he right.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Screamatics. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Tanana Reeve Du, talking about Jordan Peele's 2017 horror thriller, Get Out. Ms. Du is a screenwriter and award-winning novelist who teaches Afrofuturism and black horror at UCLA. She has written such novels as The Between, The Good House, and My Soul to Keep, as well as the short story collection Ghost Summer, which won a British Fantasy Award and was nominated for an NAACP Image Award. With her husband and collaborator Stephen Barnes, she also co- and co-produced Danger Word, a short film based upon their young adult zombie novel, Devil's Wake. And if I may, hers is one of my favorite Twitter accounts to currently follow. Anyway, Ms. Du, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So I gotta ask, as with every episode, um, you know, I always ask my guests, out of any horror movie they might have chosen to talk about at length, why they went with the one they did. So what made you go with the Get Out?
1: It's just such a no-brainer for me because Get Out a, is a Black horror movie, and as a Black horror writer, it's that movie that we've all wanted to see get made <laughs> that that hadn't been made yet, and uh, that is just exciting enough. But it's also been, secondly, hugely successful. It's earned more than $100 million, probably far beyond that, actually, by now, which makes it that rare crossover film um, that is Black-themed and has interesting sort of perspectives on race and and is also entertaining yeah
0: absolutely And i I gotta say it's kind of a treat to be talking about this movie for two reasons i mean you know the the conceit of this podcast is we invite on a creative and horror and they choose a single horror movie to chat about at length and that's resulted in a lot of great talks but inevitably there have been a lot of older sort of classics chosen you know we've had the haunting and halloween and texas chainsaw and elm street but uh and you know we've had some oddball choices too but um I believe the most recent movie to have been chosen is already over half a decade old, but get out just came out this past February. So it's kind of neat to be able to talk about a relatively recent movie. And I will go ahead and warn listeners. um, The movie is not that old, but nevertheless uh, we will probably be diving into spoilers. So if for whatever reason you haven't seen get out, definitely pause the podcast and watch it because it's a great movie and then come back and listen to the rest of the chat, but there will definitely be spoilers. So that's your warning. But, uh, uh, I don't know. And the second reason is I uh, I used to write for a horror website and I remember writing a review of The Conjuring when it had just come out. And I remember noting then that stepping out of the theater, it felt as though I'd seen what was I was certain would be considered a classic. You know, it wasn't merely a great movie. It wasn't merely scary as hell, you know, having done its job very well. But it had this feeling that it was a movie that would survive, you know, that people would still be talking about it decades from now. Mm-hmm. And I, I got that feeling too, when I walked out of get out, it feels like such a timely film, but it also feels like a movie that's ultimately going to prove to be timeless as well. I think.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And, and that's, that's a great example because it is one of those films where there's never been anything quite like it, but when you watch it, you're like, well, but of course it should have existed before now. <laughs> You know, I mean, of course you have to tell this story. And it's one of those really rewatchable films, too. I've seen it probably three times. I'll probably see it a couple more times. I'm actually teaching a course on it. Really? Uh, well, at least it's it's a jumping off point for a course I'll be teaching at UCLA starting uh, this quarter called The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and the Black Horror Aesthetic. So it excited me so much that I was like, okay, this is, Sort of a, the building block i need to do more of an overview course because even though it's very singular in the sense that there's never been a black horror movie that's been this successful this talked about <laughs> um this part of the much a part of the national conversation but it's not the first you know there have been other black horror films dating back to very very early hollywood some of them made by white filmmakers um, where blacks were sort of more comic relief and ain't nobody here but this chicken, you know, this kind of thing (laughs) where that kind of stereotype of the cowardly sort of childlike uh, black man evolved. And then, and then also the monstrous threats of blacks and black magic. And then when you had black filmmakers doing horror, very often it's just sort of uh, claiming their own space. Like we're here we're not stereotypical. Like there's a movie called Son of Bengagi. I think it's from 1940 or 1941, which is pretty cheesy, okay? It's on YouTube, by the way, Son of Ngagi, I-N-G-A-G-I. It's pretty cheesy. I know they didn't have a budget, but you can just see the filmmakers trying to say, see, black people are just like everybody else. We have weddings, <laughs> you know, the police chief is black. It's just this rare glimpse of black life from that era in a way that wasn't stereotypical. Um, and Jordan Peele is kind of picking up on that tradition where horror is not being used against us, but it's being used to help us express a sort of cultural horror um, that has been sort of intergenerational in trying to just survive, frankly.
0: And it is. I. It was... It was a strange experience kind of watching the movie when it came out because, you know, I mentioned the movie being timely earlier. It's weird to think that this movie was sort of conceived during the time that we had Obama in office. You know, there was unrest, certainly, and there had been those police shootings. But it just felt like horribly amazing timing for this film to have been released, you know, just after Trump took office. And it was kind of a – true. Kind of, a, I don't know, like a, a strangely cathartic experience watching this movie in theaters with an audience as we were all just sort of learning how to deal with that guy being in the White House.
1: That is interesting, you know, and films do have this special conversation with the political times. I know the first movie I saw after the election was um, Arrival, Arrival, and that kind of hopeful feeling sort of that, well, humankind maybe doesn't completely suck, and maybe we're not completely doomed, <laughs> <It> was just <laughs> what I needed. <laughs> and um, with Get Out, interestingly enough, you know, I live in, a, in an area of Southern California that is majority white, so the, the movie theater I went to was also majority white, and that wasn't exactly the way I planned it. We were going to hire a babysitter and at least get, like, closer to Pasadena <laughs> where, where we might get more diversity in the audience. But it ended up being right here where I live. And so I was watching it with sort of this double consciousness. It's like one hand, I want to enjoy the movie. But on the other hand, I'm wondering, well, how are other people reacting to the movie, (laughs) Uh, especially this one gentleman next to us. And it's just so interesting that by the end of the film, it's really not about black and white so much. It's about, we know this guy, we want him to get out and survive and we're rooting for him. And, and the black and white, that was the experiences that audiences had. And it wouldn't have made as much money as it's made, honestly, if that was not the experience that audiences are having. So yeah, it is an interesting cultural experience just unto itself, the the viewing of the movie in a crowd.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, you did mention with him being sort of I think he winds up becoming sort of everyone's hero in the audience no matter I mean the movie is obviously about race, but I, I think, you know, even five minutes in after we're introduced to uh Chris, the Daniel Kaluuya character, like he mm-hmm. he is such an instantly kind of likable guy. And you know yeah. you know, I, I can't imagine You know, many people walk into any horror movie not knowing what they're kind of in for. So, at the very beginning, there's always, with any horror movie, this kind of unease because you know inevitably that things are going to go pretty terribly for our lead character. And, you know, with Chris, he is set up. You know, we see his artwork at the beginning, we see that he's talented. He has this Mm -hmm. conversation where he shows his kind of trepidation about going to meet his girlfriend's family. And then there's that scene with the deer being hit. And his reaction yeah. to it, which we eventually find out, you know, what what that means to him. But, I mean, it, it really just sets him up as being a really likable protagonist. And I think, you know, I think any audience is kind of going to be over his shoulder throughout that journey. And they're going to be cheering for him. And, you know, the the audience that I saw it with, uh, we can definitely dive into talking about the final few minutes of the movie later on. But I will say that in that final scene scene, Jordan Peele, as the director, you know, he had everybody in that auditorium mm. on the edge of their seat. And when the uh-huh. uh, when the lights go off, you could feel everybody in the auditorium tense up. And then when the final reveal is made, there's there was this amazing sort of collective gasp and then laughter, <laughs> you know, which is so oh, incredible to share that with audiences these days. And I think a big part of that, again, goes – to how interesting the protagonist is and how much we kind of care about him throughout the course of the story.
1: Yeah, he is a very sweet-natured young man, Chris. And, and I want to go back to the scene you mentioned where the deer gets hit on the road uh, on the way to uh, his girlfriend's parents' house. That's such an important scene because it leads to a police encounter. Uh, and, and not to lose track of what I wanted to say about his sweetness, but I just want to say as an aside that from the very beginning, Jordan Peele is seeding this film with images and situations that are very uncomfortable for blacks in the audience. Maybe whites too, okay, maybe. I, I guess everybody gets uncomfortable in a strange neighborhood, but from the very beginning of the movie where we have this other character, um, introduced, uh, who will later appear. <laughs> In a different form after his body has been taken over. He literally gets kidnapped off of a, a suburban street where he is very nervous to be alone after dark as a black man on that street. And that's real. You know, I've, I've had similar experiences to that where I was hiking and I, I, I got lost every day hiking and I would come out in a new place every time. <laughs> and one time I came out in this like really nice upper middle class neighborhood with all these supplies and I just to myself, I looked like I just looked like I came out of someone's house and took all their stuff. Now, that's in my head. Maybe someone looking at me wouldn't wouldn't think that. But I was very nervous. And also, um, dealing with police officers, this is something again, you know, as police shootings get publicized on social media and in the news, and, you know, a, a simple traffic stop has become a lot scarier for a lot even white, you know, like this woman who was on social media the other day who was afraid to move her hands off the steering wheel. And the police officer said, I assume, joking, well, we only shoot whites, right? You probably heard this story. We, and he got in big trouble. For, I think he got fired or at least put on leave for saying that. Um, so, <laughs> he's, he, yeah, he's poking all these buttons uh, that especially black viewers were already tense, okay? And that police encounter, to me, was very tense. And when I first watched Get Out and again, Chris was so sweet about the way his girlfriend stood up. What do you mean? Why do you need his ID? He wasn't driving. Okay, first of all, that is not the way typically a black person would react. I mean, sometimes, sometimes, but a lot of the time we're just taught you want to be as calm, docile, and unthreatening as possible. Uh, My barber said he even smiles on his driver's license picture, so he won't look threatening from the moment he produces his drive. These are real conversations we have. So when she's going off and being, you know, all combative with the police officer, a lot of us who are black in the audience are just tensing up, (laughs) like, oh no, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. (laughs) And instead of completely reaming her when they were alone, which is what I thought he might do, you know, give her the talk, like, hey, when we're dealing with the police, Don't you ever act like that. That's what I was thinking he should say. But but what he actually said, he just looked at her with these doe eyes and he said, that was hot. And I'm like, really, dude? But he's just a sweet guy. He's not looking at it as how dangerous it might have been. He's strictly looking at it as, wow, she stood up for me. (laughs) That was so sweet and hot. Uh, And that's you're right. That's who the character is. And it's hard not to like that guy. Um, Yeah, it's really hard not to like that guy.
0: It's interesting that scene too. There was um, I remember after I watched the movie, it was definitely like the movie that everybody was talking about at the uh, the bookstore that I worked at. I was in Florida at the time, um, mm. and it was it was like the movie of discussion for like a week or two. And there was this uh, article that came out. There was something like. Uh, Oh, gosh, it was like 20 things that you may have missed about Get Out. And it was all of these little, Mm -hmm. like, you know, down to, like, some visual subtext, you know, woven throughout the movie, which is kind of fascinating, like, some of the things that are in there. But one of the things that they pointed out was something that had completely flown over my head, which was her taking up for him. Like, that seems like a moment that is designed to make us like her, and we certainly do. But Mm. also it is her not wanting a paper trail to be created. Right. That would link, you know, her in any way to Chris later on as a just in case and it's like, "Oh, that's so, you know, even that moment, even that moment when she stood up for him. Like even that was like this devious ploy, you know?"
1: <laughs> right. It just looks like she was, "Oh, that's it it has many layers." Uh and and that's why I said you can just rewatch it and pick up on so many details that you missed uh, the first time.
0: And she is like the way She is written and, you know, the way he directs the film, like Rose seems like a really decent person. She seems cool, you know, and it seems like they're such a great couple together. And, you know, with her calling that cop early on, like we like her a little bit more and she seems like a great girlfriend. And there's this kind of hope that she'll remain that way, you know, that there won't be some cruel twist when it comes to her character, even though, you know, we the audience, I I think because it's a horror movie and because – you know, horror movies sometimes trade in having twists and turns mm-hmm. and big reveals. Mm-hmm. It, I, you know, as an audience member, I really wanted her to be a decent person. I really wanted her to be the person that we thought she was, but we're always kind of a little distrustful of her. I think at the same time, just by, I don't know, maybe just by nature of the genre.
1: Maybe so. But I mean, the, the setup is such that, you kind of get the sense, at least for me, that he's on his own a little bit because she's slightly oblivious. She, I mean, it's not that you expect a huge racist reaction from your parents when you bring home a, black, a brown boyfriend, but maybe you do. I mean, if you've never done it before, how do you know? And it's not the kind of thing you just wait and see how it plays out, <laughs> generally speaking, which seemed to be her play. And, of course, we know later when she says, do they know I'm black, that's complete bull. The whole point is that he's black, right? So that whole naive act she's putting on is like, we don't see color kind of act she's putting on. <laughs> it's complete bull. Um, and, but also, let's say she wasn't that. Let's say she was just a little bit oblivious. And, and Chris has been around long enough to know. He's gotten enough of those side eyes and gazes and glances that he knows that sometimes there's a level of discomfort. When your daughter comes home with a black man and the way she jokes and says, oh, yes, hi, mom. Uh, Have you met my boyfriend? He's a black man. She said it in that jokey way. You know, (laughs) which nobody ever says that in that way. And she's completely jokey about it. It's very endearing. It seems incredibly naive. So for me, I'm thinking, oh, Chris, you are on your own. (laughs) She's not running (laughs) interference. Although she did end up running interference with the cop. But it's different when you're actually going to have to be staying somewhere and dealing with people. So I wasn't wary of her, but I was definitely wary of the situation. And it seemed that she was going to be somewhat ineffectual, you know, in, in resolving whatever might happen with her parents.
0: No, absolutely. And her parents, too, are sort of they're one, they're cast with amazing actors. Like, the entire cast is great. But, like, as soon as you meet them, maybe even beyond the fact that it is a horror movie and this is, you know, if they've gone to the house, then clearly the house is going to be the threat in some way or the people who own it. And so, as a result, her parents are likely going to be the antagonists in some way. But when you first meet them, there is that... It's so uncomfortable because... The mother seems polite enough, but the father is really reaching with, you know, from yeah. minute one. How long has this thing been, you know, or how long has this been, this been going thing. on this thing? And, this
1: thing. Every time I heard that in the trailer, it was just great on my ear. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he would say thing like that, it's like a way of sort of wink, wink. Yeah, I'm down. And like, no, you're so not down, stop. Stop <laughs>
0: And even like, the the whole that would have been bad enough, but like it, it goes on with you know him sort of trying so hard, like the uh, you know it's such a privilege experiencing another p- person's culture, and then you know talking about Hitler with all his Aryan bullshit. And I would have voted for oh, Obama yeah. for a third term. You know, there it's almost like there are two different types of tension running in that scene at the same time. You know, we we know we're watching a horror film. We've seen the trailers and ads. We know Chris is in some sort of danger, but there is that other sort of tension where the father is being. So ham fisted in his attempts to show that, you know, he he's a good liberal and he's so right. totally not a racist that it's it's kind of uncomfortable to watch. And to to some degree, you know, myself as an audience member just watching, I there was there was this other layer where I'm watching. I'm just kind of like I'm trying to rifle through my memories and, you know, be like, have have I ever done anything like that? Have I ever acted like mm. that? Have I ever said anything like that? Like I – and, you know, praying that I haven't ever been – you know, so uh, – I think Rose's line is lame. <laughs>
1: what did she – when she tried to uh, – after – what line? Which line?
0: Oh, early on when she, she's talking about her parents and she – or no, even her dad. And she's just like, uh, just so you know, my dad totally would have voted for Obama for a, the third oh, term. Right, and he's right, totally right, going right. to want you – to yes. talk about that. And he's he's just lame.
1: <laughs> right. And, and he did talk about it. And it's sort of a semi awkward moment of communion between them. I mean, father and uh, the boyfriend. So, yeah, clearly Peel, um, who has moved in interracial circles and, you know, worked uh, with all kinds of people, clearly is looking at this question of what it means to be sort of absorbed into uh, white culture or or judged by white culture, I guess, to, to feel that, that gaze um, in an intimate way because you're in a house, you know? You got to sit and eat dinner. You got to have tea. Oh, my God. So, yeah, he's looking at that real-life discomfort that no doubt he has experienced and probably worse. Um, but he, he holds it back. You know, it's not outward racism. It's just sort of, a, like you said, ham it. I think that's a great way to put it attempt to to create solidarity um, by recognizing that, yeah, okay, awkward, you know, <laughs> and then the fact that they have these black what looks like black servants in the house. Oh, my gosh, that is just what are you even thinking at this point, you know, when you're uh, this poor guy. So yeah, he, he's brilliantly looking at, you know, Liberalism and and that idea that sometimes if you scratch the surface of someone who considers themselves liberal, I mean they're not probably going to try to take over your body, <laughs> but they may they may not you know and they may think you're a terrorist if you if you're against police violence you know or whatever and in favor of Black Lives Matter or something like that. So uh, so yeah, there's there's a misunderstanding um going on culturally that i think get out addresses really really well uh even before the major horror element appears we're already uncomfortable and we don't even know why like his mom the mom made me nervous i wasn't sure why she wasn't doing anything but there was just something and this was a great actress uh playing the mom you talked about the great cast but um I'm trying to find her name because she's I've seen Catherine her in a, Keener yes, Katherine Keener. she is fantastic and creepy as heck as the mom. I think it's just this sort of know it all demeanor she has I mean I, rewatching it it's almost like she can't wait to start hypnotizing him. you know they're on them about the cigarettes immediately, both because they don't want a body marred by tobacco, uh, literally, because that's their body. (laughs) And they're going to use that body. So how dare you fill that body with nicotine. (laughs) But the other thing is the the hypnotism is a way to open that door for their grand plan, you know. So she's just, she's just creepy. She's creepy to me from the very beginning. And that scene with the hypnosis and the sunken place, I have to say I was enjoying Get Out up to that point. He really had me from Hello, like from the opening scene where the guy's lost in the neighborhood and I'm like, Yes. But by the time we get to the sunken place, like they used to say on Mad T V, uh, when when Keegan and Peel were on Mad T V whole nother level. That was just a <laughs> whole nother level. I was like, Oh shoot, this is not just gonna be some ordinary horror flick this is about to get deep and, and it does it gets it gets really deep
0: yeah and that i i agree she is really really creepy there is something i think it you know you mentioned that she's not really doing anything and i think that's kind of why she is creepy i mean the the father is dean um you know he's kind of a motor mouth he just can't help yeah. talk whereas she is sort of just sitting there quietly observing. And she's almost like a snake Mm -hmm. just sitting there. Yeah. Like there's something reptilian about her performance and the way she studies and before she pounces in a way, you know. Uh, Yeah. And then plus, I I think there are like three truly iconic things about the movie. And one of them is that damn cup and spoon. It's just so unsettling because of what, you know, the kind of power that she wields with it once she... You know, she's hypnotized somebody for the first time.
1: Yeah, the first time you hear the ting, 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 it's bothering you, and it's even a little creepy, but you don't know why. And then you discover why. You know, as a horror head, and I'm sure you feel this way, it is so rare to find something in a horror movie that you've just literally not seen done that way before. Oh, totally. And for me, it was that teacup is like one of those truly special moments. Was like, oh, okay, I've never seen anyone do it quite that way. But I mean, we've seen hypnosis, I guess, but I, I just, it, it felt fresh and that is so exciting to a horror fair <laughs> when something is actually fresh. So yeah, um, that teacup and the hypnosis and the, the pressuring him about his childhood trauma. You know, one of the things I do, and I teach to my writing students uh, who who are writing horror in particular, is that the external horror often has to be mirrored by some internal trauma. You know, um, one of the easiest examples of that is Stephen King's The Shining. So you have this family where this guy is struggling with alcoholism and he's abused his kid. Okay, I was rewatching that recently and the report the mom gives on what happened to the son when the dad got mad. That's child abuse. There are a lot of people who would have just reported that conversation and in the movie, she just, the, the psychologist kind of just stared with judgment. But that's the internal trauma. This is a family that has internal trauma. So when they go to the Overlook Hotel, that internal trauma is almost what opens the door for the horror, the supernatural element to come get them. And it's kind of like that's what Catherine Keener's character is doing and get out. She's poking and prodding at his internal trauma. His past trauma to get him in an emotionally childlike and weakened state, so that the, I guess horror science fiction element—I'll I, I, call it science fiction. <laughs> I mean, it, I guess it's science, um, pseudoscience. Let's call it pseudoscience fiction. Um, can come in that horror element is 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 preying upon his trauma from his childhood, and, and I've rarely seen it done that directly. Um, and that really, to me, that effectively.
0: Yeah. And there's kind of the way she does it too. It isn't merely bringing up like these, you know, really, really tough memories for Chris, but there's kind of this cruelty to it yeah, where she points out that he couldn't save her. He didn't save her. He didn't do anything, you know, and it, it feels unnecessary in a way. Like she had already, gotten to where she needed to go, it seems. But then she continued to manipulate him further. And there's – that scene is so terrifying. And I think much of it is probably down to Daniel Glue's performance. Like that shot of him mm. frozen in place, like
1: mm. but
0: crying, just the tears continually running. Yes. And that's that's yes. to me another one of the iconic moments in the movie. The other being, in my opinion, the uh, the moment with Georgina as her real – personality sort of begins to surface you know when she has that grin but she's crying and the no 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 no, like that no
1: no 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 yeah it's oh yeah you know get out is like the the jerry Maguire of horror movies you know
0: that's amazing
1: instead of you had me from hello it's no 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 and it's like such a what the and you can't really tell what tone of voice is coming from is it frantic? Is it angry? I mean, it's just like, what is happening here? Um, and also the running, I mean, like, there's so many memes from Get Out. Uh, the, the running uh, man, the running black man outside who's, who's out, you know, catching his body. And We don't know that's what he's doing. All we see is some frantic guy running from or to what we don't know. That's weird. That just looks weird. Um, and the no, 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 no scene. And of course, the teacup, all that stuff. It's just, it's very memeable all
0: these uh, these moments yeah absolutely again you know it was down to uh, I think I'd only yeah I'd only seen the movie once before I uh, I read that article you know the 20 things you may have missed about Get Out and they pointed out that the running is a creepy moment and it gets Chris to turn around and then he sees Georgina sort of checking mm-hmm. her reflection in the uh, the glass in the door or whatever and then they pointed out that you know, okay, those are the grandparents, but the right. father was a runner as a young man, and now he has yeah. this new body. So of course, he's 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 going to test it out. He's going to want to run, and then Georgina checking her reflection. She's likely checking the wig, which is covering up the sort mm. of not a lobotomy scar, but I mean the, the surgery mm-hmm. scar. And it's just ugh. like I, the it's so unsettling all of it early on, and it's like. Jordan Peele, he he starts out unsettling you, and then he just very carefully ratchets up the tension bit by bit by bit by bit. And even even with the opening, even in that neighborhood, you know, the the kidnapping, and then that song Run, Rabbit, yeah. Run, and then the song, uh, is it Seek um, with the shot of the passing trees. I mean, it starts the movie out mm-hmm. on this note of menace. And I think it shows right off the bat mm-hmm. that Jordan Peele has a great handle on tone, and you know, I mean there are plenty of comedians who have sort of made the leap to other genres but you know I up until this point I had sort of associated him solely with Kean Peele and Keanu and you know his turn in Fargo which was great but this is his first film and he displays yeah, such a masterful command of tone and knowledge of the genre it's just incredible
1: it seems to come out of nowhere uh, it certainly felt like it came because I saw Keanu. I'm a fan. I've been a fan of uh, Jordan Peele and Keegan Michael Key since they were on Mad TV together. I was like, why don't they get on SNL? I don't understand. Why won't they <laughs> hire them? And then they did their show, Keanu Peele. So it's like, okay, well, who needs an SNL? Um, and watch Keanu, like I said. But but Get Out is just whole nother level stuff and seems to come out of nowhere. But if you go back to the, the uh, Keanu Peele series, one of the things I always liked about it. Was they were not afraid to go off on futuristic science fiction and sort of genre genre tropes. They have a really funny sketch on Key and Peel. I think it's called Racist Zombies, where <laughs> <laughs> there's a zombie infestation but none of the zombies will go near them because they're black. In fact, in one of the famous moments from that sketch, a white woman who's with a zombie child actually takes her child and moves her away from Key and key because they're black. And they're zombies. <laughs> and it's hysterical. So he, they do have a track record for looking at painful uh, issues through this lens of the genre. I mean, clearly they like, Sci-fi, like horror, and and that did come up a lot in the series, but nothing to really foretell what what we would get with with Get Out.
0: With this being his debut feature, in a way, I you know I've read elsewhere that he had apparently had ideas for a Get Out follow-up, but he also wants to do social thrillers, you know, going on mm. from here, and that he is a horror fan, and I, I I can't wait. I I I. It's so nice to hear like. You know, as as a longtime horror fan, it's neat to see a, a, a new voice crop up and tell a story that we haven't seen before or tell it in a way that we've never seen before. And I, you know, I remember walking out of Get Out feeling like I had seen something completely new and I I immediately wanted to see his next half dozen movies like straight away.
1: <laughs> pretty much, yeah. That's pretty much how I felt. Well, I felt about them that way as comedians. But to see Jordan Peele. With this film, it's like, absolutely, whatever you're doing, I will be watching it Um, because, yes, you you really landed on something with this film. And uh, as I think about it, you know, the the moment of super menace for me beyond Catherine Keener and the hypnosis and the teacup is when the brother comes for dinner. He is the first family member who starts to exhibit hostility openly. And he can it's this weird combination of I wanna kick your butt. I mean secret, I mean he's he's trying to keep it held in but he's kind of exuding that he can't wait to fight he can't wait to try to like kick his butt. But also this weird envy, the way he discusses his body and his physical characteristics. It's just it's not it's not it's not sexual even it. It reminded me almost the way Like you would if you were at a slave auction, you know, uh, talking about his his body and the strength of his body in a way that involves him in some way. Now, later we find out why. (laughs) And that's probably the body he wants. But, um, But, yeah, he creeped me out. And I didn't know what his deal was. But that's when that facade starts to really fall apart when that character shows up because there is something seriously wrong with that guy. Yeah, even when he, I,
0: it was bad enough when it was just a conversation, and you could see Rose sort of shrinking back into her seat. Back when we, you know, think that she's maybe, you know, not a threat or not part of what's going on. But even when he's just talking and he's saying all of that, it's bad enough. And that actor, uh, it's uh, uh, Caleb Landry Jones. He was in The Last Exorcism and Antiviral, which is a really cool mm. movie. But uh, he's always kind of creepy in that way, but then it gets dialed up so much more in this movie. But by the time he stands up and walks around the table to want to start wrestling, mm. it's just yeah, crazy. Yeah. And it's like, get Well, I mean, at that point, I mean, the title might well be something that the audience is shouting towards the lead character. Just go, just please yeah. get out. This is not right.
1: This, this is your <laughs> hint. This is your hint to, to leave because, And again, this is where that that character um, being so sweet, um, Daniel Kaluuya's character is too polite to shut that down the way it probably needed to be shut down. Um, Too polite to say, you know what, babe, I think we need to be getting at it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so funny because when black people make jokes about horror movies, it's always, well, it'll be a really short movie, Because the minute something happens, the minute the salt shaker moves an inch across the table and I didn't see anybody's hand on it, I'm out of this house. You know, (laughs) that's kind of the joke. There was a reality show called Scare Tactics. Do you remember that on the Sci-Fi Channel?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It was amazing. But often when they had black and brown um, participants in that show, my husband and I would joke, oh, well, this is going to be a runner. And part of that stereotype is because, you know, very often uh, people who are black and brown have been in circumstances, even if they didn't necessarily grow up in a tough neighborhood, even if you just have a grasp of history, you understand that things go wrong, right? And when we're more privileged and more secluded and more uh, insulated from conflicts, we're, we're more curious. Well, what is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so white characters get stereotyped as sort of the curious ones, who, you know, if you hear a loud noise and there's a group like a four white people and one black person, you hear a noise, and like, what's that? You know, it's going to be one of the white people who goes to investigate, and it's going to be the black person, stereotypically, who's like, you know what? I'm just going to go. <laughs> because we don't have to wait to find out what is wrong. Something is clearly wrong. I'm, I don't I don't have that curiosity bite. But in this situation, Peel uh, you know, He diverts from that because Chris is too polite. And this is the thing. It's believable. You don't want to make waves. You don't want to make a bad impression. You don't want to make things uncomfortable for your girlfriend. So a couple of reassurances here and there. You're going to take a wait-and-see attitude until you have something concrete. And when you do have something concrete, then you're looking for the keys. Now, he did try to look for the keys in a way that I thought made sense for his psychology. Um, some of us might've left sooner or try to leave sooner, <laughs> but, but for this particular character, I think the timing worked out well for his psychology. And then of course it's all unraveling because guess what? Rose is in on it and she's not going to give you those keys. Sorry, not going to happen. And then, boom! it's, um, completely new territory with this idea of, uh, sort of subsuming his personality and transferring, uh, white person's personality into his body and all this, which I, again is sort of metaphor for me for kind of this um, body envy, which if you look at like the way uh, black music and black athleticism is so electrifying to our culture, but when it comes to sort of those issues that are actually facing those communities, the culture's not really that interested. It's like, uh, you know, as long as you're entertaining, as long as you're making a touchdown, but don't kneel during the national anthem kind of thing. Um, and I don't want to hear why you're kneeling during the national anthem. That doesn't have an effect on me. Um, and that's the kind of the thing that I think Peel is, is playing with is this, this envy on the one hand, this appreciation uh, on the one hand for the, the physical nature of the body or whatever the talent is that someone may have. In this case, he's a photographer uh, and someone's, you know, wants his eyes, right? As I recall. So, so yeah, <laughs> that's what he's doing. And there's a lot, there's a lot wrapped up in that conversation and he does it in a way that doesn't feel uh, politically heavy handed. It's just the story unfolding.
0: Yeah. And you know, everything that you just mentioned too, it seems like the, uh... It's sort of represented in that one moment in the movie when he is trying to escape and the father Dean you know he's he's sort of struck a strange pose at the fireplace you know sort of gazing mm. into it, you know it's and you you almost imagine that he's practiced this moment in his head but when he says mm-hmm. what is it he says something like what is your purpose Chris and there's this feeling that he's saying what like maybe Chris doesn't deserve his life or at least his body or his physicality or something. Right, like that. And that's just, it, it's so, I I don't know. I don't know if I can articulate properly how I feel about that moment. And that, that, that thought that that character has that he, that he can look at somebody and say, you don't deserve yourself. And as a result, I'm yeah. now going to claim it. And that's just that it immediately sort of put those parents into the pantheon of most evil horror villains ever
1: (laughs) Mm. yes and let's not forget rose you know that really creepy moment where he discovers the photographs of the other people that she has brought home to her parents all these black guys and the black woman and it's like wait a minute this is all planned this is all orchestrated it's just very very creepy I wonder
0: do you wa- do you think watching the movie you said you've seen it a few times now I've seen it 3 times now myself I the first time I saw the reveal about Rose you know coming from the the box of photos left just inside her you know closet which was conveniently left open you know when I first saw the movie I loved it and I didn't hate that specific moment but it felt a little too convenient that Chris would um. stumble across those at that point in the movie but after rewatching the film a couple of times and paying attention to how Rose behaves and so, sort of relishes her role in that family. Once we know the truth about mm. her, I wonder if that wasn't staged. I wonder if she didn't want Chris to find them. And I, I, I just wonder if there isn't that sort of wicked playful streak in her.
1: Well, I mean, and Steve and I talked about her. Um, I think the second time we saw it, I mean, what's in this for her really, you know, she, has to find her individual joy within this sick family framework, and her job is to snag the prey and bring them home and I'm sure she's very proud of herself for that, and maybe on one level kind of wanted him <laughs> to know you know maybe you're right, maybe I mean if we could write that off and still make her convenience and and that we've seen that before. Where characters will stumble across uh, useful visual information uh, just when they need to, so it could be a, that it could be just that. Uh, photographs are an easy way to convey information, but it also could just be she at that point was not really caring that much. Um, and yeah, I'm proud of what I do, and I'm good at what I do. <laughs> I don't know. And I gotta say, but that's too, a, she's one of the sickest people in this story. I mean, she's not getting a body; she's just bringing the bodies.
0: Yeah, it I. Uh, she I gotta admit I was a little heartbroken at the turn with her, just because you know again i they seemed like a cool couple, and it seemed like you know, yeah, she was kind of like ineffectual throughout, but when it came to that point in the movie where in most horror movies, somebody is always arguing, like you said, somebody is curious or somebody wants to investigate further, or somebody just wants to not leave. When we reach that point in the movie, she says, "You know what? Let's just go." Like she does the right thing. Thank
1: goodness! And finally, she's talking sense. Yeah, it
0: kind of (laughs) won me over. Like at that point, you know, I was always kind of wary of her. And then when she says, "Let's just go," I was like, "Okay, maybe, maybe she's okay." And then there is (sighs) that. There's that moment, even after the photos, where I still kind of wanted to believe in that character and that maybe her family had been using her. You know, her mother is a hypnotist. Yeah. And maybe she brainwashed her daughter and used her as kind of a siren to lure people in. And there's that line where she's on the stairs and she is rifling through her purse and her voice is shaking and she says, what is going on? And it seems like she's so confused that it gave me hope Mm. that that might actually be the case, that maybe she is you know, she's being used like a tool. And then, of course, you know, we have the reveal that tells us otherwise, but I wonder, in a way, like, if that still might not be the case, if we can still make the, I don't know, the case that, I don't know, those parents did raise her. She was a child at one point, and clearly they they molded her to become who she became, so in a way, they're still responsible.
1: I mean, yeah, but she's a grown-up, and every heinous every person who's done something heinous um has influences you know that that push them in that direction, but in the end she's just rose has to take responsibility for Rose you know I do feel bad I mean imagine really any of those kids growing up in that crazy house uh <laughs> how their how their psyches must be so twisted but sorry, sorry she's got to take responsibility and I don't you know and actually I'm just grateful that she didn't play the sympathetic Girlfriend longer than she did because she would have fooled us all. She would have fooled Chris. She would have fooled uh, the audience. Um, I was glad when she finally put her cards on the table because he needed to understand that he had no allies there, none. That he was surrounded by enemies. And you know, this is interesting because, and this is something that I'm going to discuss in my my black horror class at UCLA. There's a science fiction story uh, from 1920. W.E.B. Du Bois, who is mostly known as a political leader, and essayist, and organizer, anti-lynching and uh, activist. But he wrote a science fiction story about this sort of apocalypse, like a comet hits New York and the only survivors are a black man and a white woman. And in his way, back in 1920, he was kind of having the same conversation that, that Jordan Peele was having almost 100 years later, when you think about it, which is this explosive imagery that accompanies a black man and white woman and the danger that that might pose, you know, for, for white audiences back in 1920, that danger uh, would have looked like him. <laughs> you know, he would have looked like the danger. There's a lot of distrust. And spoiler for that story at the end, when we realize everybody's not dead and her father's there, the first thing they want to know, did he touch you? Did he, Oh my God, you know, this Touches. kind of thing, like he's automatically a rapist because, because he's black basically. And even though, we're not quite that backward now. Uh, uh, I think the, the parallel in get out is this idea that Chris is in danger because he's in this interracial relationship. So, and this is sort of a cautionary tale that black fathers have told their sons for generations, you know, sometimes joking, sometimes not. I mean, sometimes the joke is you'll get your heart broken uh, because they're not going to marry you or whatever. But, I think in this film what we're looking at is more the physical danger of removing yourself from your own sort of protective community and, and being in, in someone else's community and basically at the mercy of whatever that community wants to do to you. And and that is really in a horror film sort of a summary of what it can feel like to be isolated um, in spaces, you know, where you're the only black kid in your class, you're the only black kid in your neighborhood, you're the only black person at your job. Um, And it's not that you walk around feeling like you're in danger all the time, but the mind does play these what if scenarios, you know, and in our world, it can be like, well, wait, what did he mean by that? This thing, (laughs) you know, (laughs) which you might hear that at work. So what what does my coworker mean by What did my boss mean when he said that? That didn't sound appropriate. Does that mean that he just sees me as a black employee, like a diversity hire, and my job isn't safe? I mean, like those little subtle microaggressions that that people. But but this is writ large and get out. And it's like no, it's not just a subtle microaggression. It's this. It's this hint that there's something really really evil at the core. And and that's sort of a, I would say, a deep-seated fear by people who assimilate.
0: You know, in talking about the movie, it deals with race. And I did find it curious, though, that in watching it again, I don't know that I even paid that close of attention to it the first time that I saw the movie. But watching it again, the antagonists of the movie are white. But there is that scene where Rod goes to the cops with his story, mm-hmm. the best friend Rod. yeah. And, you know, the the detective that he's talking to is African-American. And there is that moment where it feels like that Rod is going to be helped and that he will, you know, uh, receive some sort of um, assistance in finding Chris. But then the cops just laugh in his face. And I'm wondering.
1: Yeah, if, that, that is a great moment. I,
0: I, I was just wondering if, like, the movie wasn't trying to make a, a broader point with that by removing, um, you know, sort of race from that scene in a way, you know, and making the notion of cops, not necessarily antagonists, but a force that ultimately wouldn't be that helpful in that situation. Or do you think I'm completely silly for that?
1: No, I think this is the kind of film where you can analyze almost any aspect of it. And the answer you come up with is the truth, because that's what you see. That's the bottom line, no matter what Jordan Peele intended Art is in the eye of the beholder. Um, For me, it's interesting. I didn't notice that the cop was black so much. I mean, I was very excited that a black woman who wasn't as weird (laughs) as that servant had finally shown up, like a black woman I recognized had finally shown up in the movie. That was exciting for me. So I did notice she was black. But I, um, and and like you, I kind of had hope. That she would listen. She seemed to be listening so intently. And I didn't think it was necessarily because she was black, but maybe he might be dismissed a little less readily because it wasn't, you know, um, a white cop who's just looking at him kind of like, what the hell is this guy want? <laughs> so she was, she seemed to be giving him at least a time of day. And that moment where she says, uh, just a moment and excuses herself so soberly. And then she brings back the other two cops. So now we're thinking, yes. But I think that's just the director having some fun with that, because, of course, the cops are going to laugh. Did you hear that story? I mean, that was a crazy story. So, and yeah.
0: Yeah, I I, 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 uh, we haven't mentioned him that much up until this point, but I do love the Rod character because he's almost the. I think he's the voice of reason in a strange way throughout the course of the entire movie. He is, you know, in a way like he's always on Chris's cell phone, but it's like he's almost on Chris's shoulder throughout. Yeah. The entire and let's movie.
1: keep let's keep it real. If Rod had been at that house, how long would he have hung around? OK, I don't think he would have uh, lasted as long <laughs> if Chris did. If he'd been the one visiting instead, he definitely was the one speaking for all of us in the audience saying, what the hell is going on there? You need to get out of that situation.
0: By the time we get to the final third, we, I think the movie kind of pulled this amazing sleight of hand where, you know, we saw the trailers, and then we're watching the movie, and we have Rod commenting on what he thinks is going on. And it does this amazing sort of magic trick, I think, where... It We know that there's going to be a revelation about what's going on. We know that there's probably going to be a twist. There's going to be a surprise and we're going to find out what terrible thing is going on there. But what the movie does amazingly well, I think, is it lets us think that we know what that is and that it's trying to hide it when, in fact, it's not really that at all. We Like, you know, we think that it's maybe the Stepford Wives. Or something like that. We mm-hmm, think that mm-hmm. you know, maybe people are being brainwashed. Maybe they're being hypnotized by the mother and then used for whatever to be servants in the house, or you know, as Rod would put it, you know, maybe they're sex slaves or something like that. But then, right, you know, which is hilarious that, that that scene in the monologue. But
1: that's where he really blew it when <laughs> <Before> he <laughs> talked about the sex slaves. The cop might have listened, but he took it too far. He took it too far. But he, but
0: I think you know. So the entire time, we, the audience, we kind of feel like that's what's going on. And I got to admit, like halfway through the movie, as much as I was loving it, I was kind of in a weird way, maybe the tiniest bit disappointed that, you know, the the hand had been tipped so early on. But what's amazing about that Mm. is that it turns out in the final third that that's not what it is at all. Like what's actually going on is so much worse.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's just the –
1: unimaginable you can't even wrap your mind around it because who would even think of such a thing?
0: Yeah, uh, the the television, the the reveal, which doesn't even feel like... uh, I would imagine in less talented hands the moment where Chris is tied up and he's forced to watch a television that basically gives a, a sort of exposition dump of sorts. I would imagine that that would feel... You know, like bad writing, but the way the writing works and the way it's shot and the way well, it it's so intense and so dread inducing because you're hearing bit by bit and he's allowing us, the audience, to figure out exactly what's going to happen beat by beat right along with Chris. So that by the time Chris says the words, the sunken place, we know what his well, what we assume is going to be his fate, which is just I mean, it really is a fate worse than death, I
1: think. Yes, 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 yes. To be, and he's made that clear because we've seen the tears. We've seen the moments of lucidity trying to, to break through. So it's not like a one and done where your your consciousness is just gone. We're like a death. It's like a torture. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's worse. Uh, it's a torture you can't escape from. So yeah, that is that is horrible. It is a fate worth of death.
0: Yeah, and it's just the uh, the idea of being a passenger in your own body is just uh, I don't know. It's it's deeply yeah. creepy to me. More so even than uh, I don't know a possession of some sort, say in you know uh, uh, like The Exorcist or something like that, because at least then there's the hope that I don't know the demon might be expelled. But in this case, right. it feels. You know, there's a finality to it, it feels like.
1: Yeah, there's a science, uh, or rather, pseudoscience and procedure to it that it's hard to imagine could be completely undone. That would be a weird movie. Someone who's been, like, cured, (laughs) but not quite cured.
0: I you know, I'm curious to see when he mentioned that uh he had ideas for a sequel, like I can't imagine that it's just going to be a retread. I if he did a follow no. up in the same world, I'm sure he's going to want to make it different. And I when I read that, I wondered my mind immediately flashed to, well, how many people are out there in the world right now, in the world of that movie that have had that procedure done? Like how many people are stuck in the sunken place, walking around being well, passengers.
1: I can name a couple: Ben Carson, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the housing uh, HUD director. Um, let's see, what's the name of that crazy sheriff? Uh, gosh, I've expelled his name from my memory. But the one who wears all the medals—he's—he's got to be in the punkin place. That's all I can. I mean, that's—and that's another thing that is so um, much a wink to the audience is because we all can think of people, oh, Clarence Thomas, (laughs) that we think of as being in the sunken place, even though they're probably not, literally, but that feel so out of step with the thinking, you know, of you and your friends and your parents and your grandparents, that it's hard to explain how they came to these positions that would seem to be in opposition to their own people, you know? And it's it's tough. And, of course, everyone has different political beliefs, and blacks are not a monolith. But there have definitely been some folks in history who have puzzled us. And Clarence Thomas is one of those who puzzles us. Um, ben Carson puzzles us. And the sunken place is such a great explanation. And not only just an explanation, but in some ways a revelation of what happens when assimilation gets so strong that I in my opinion anyway, you can start to sort of lose sight of the bigger picture and you and that and I think that is born of deep conversations some people of color have blacks in particular, is there something wrong with us? Is there something wrong with us? Is history explained because there's something wrong with us? And you really have to have a lot of education. And have an understanding of sociology and history, or maybe your parents just taught you. But it, to answer that question is tough. It's tough for whites and blacks. It's not just whites who wonder. And and so that also is the sunken place. Is where you have lost that faith that you were actually fully human and worthy of full equality.
0: I, you know when he mentioned that he had ideas for a follow-up i couldn't wrap my mind around what it might be but listening to you talk right now like thematically i think you pretty much set up a template that could drive a sequel and i think it would be pretty amazing
1: hey well let's get in touch with his office and put me right on that <laughs>
0: <laughs> i would watch that movie i um uh, yeah yeah when when we finally start you know getting to the movie's final moments um It's had this sort of – you know, I'd read interviews where he talked about drawing on Rosemary's Baby and The Stepford Wives and these more classic horror films of the 60s and 70s. And when you think of The Stepford Wives and Rosemary's Baby and, you know, 70s horror films, generally they end in a pretty downbeat way. And so when Chris is sort of strapped down to that chair and he's told everything to him that's going to happen, like it's just – It's such a bummer because it seems like a foregone conclusion. It's like Sergeant Howie at the end of The Wicker Man. You know, it takes 15 Mm. minutes for them to finally roast him, but he's not getting out of that situation, you know. And so it's so thrilling at the end of Get Out that what we're certain is going to be a downbeat ending actually turns. Even though they're, I mean, my God, the man has to go through hell to even get out of the house, let alone off the property.
1: it's, It's awful. It's bloody. And I kept checking the... The white gentleman next to me. Like, is he? How's he handling this? <laughs> this is getting cut. this is getting pretty bloody. <laughs> Are we changing sides here? But uh, but yeah, it is. It's quite a trial, and I have not yet seen the alternate ending. I've heard that there is um, a less happy alternate ending where Chris does not get away, which I will watch. But I- I'm kind of sad that that ending even exists. I am so glad. he did not end the movie with Chris in Prison Orange uh, because you follow me on Twitter and incarceration is one of my big issues and that prison outfit really triggers me. So if if I had gone through all that and he just ended up in prison, I'd be like, ah! So I'm really (laughs) happy that it it has a different ending and he gets away and Rod shows, oh, thank goodness for Rod, best friend ever. But yeah, it could have gone the other way. And I think... A lot of us watching it are thinking it probably would have gone another way.
0: It really, the, those final moments are so amazing, like the power that they had over the audience that I was watching it with, where, you know, I, it's been so bloody up until that point. All of the characters have sort of, you know, been knocked down one by one. And then we get that incredibly gruesome moment where the grandfather you know, is no longer the grandfather. You know, he is brought back Mm -hmm. to who he actually was for a moment, long enough to shoot Rose and then sadly, you know, Mm -hmm. shoot himself. And then Chris is strangling Rose, but then he stops. And I think that's a great moment because, I mean, I think he would have been well within his rights at that point. I mean, my God, for everything that he had gone through to sort of strangle the person who had put him into that situation in the first place. But we know from Chris's backstory the idea of a woman wounded on a road, like what that means to him and what Georgina meant to him only a couple of minutes earlier when he hit her with the car and was going to leave her. But he must've been thinking about his mother to some degree to go back. You know, even he's
1: Mm. as
0: surely as the audience is chanting at the screen, he's telling himself, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) You know, but, but we know his backstory. So it makes sense that he couldn't leave her. But, you know, for all of that, when he finally sort of lets Rose go, go and it goes back to what you were saying about him being such a sweet-natured character at heart like he couldn't ultimately kill somebody in cold blood you know in defense sure but at that moment he sort of held all the power and then Mm. it's kind of a relief in that moment but as soon as the lights hit him from the cop car everybody in my audience you could feel the tension like oh no and then all of a sudden like you know, you mentioned the alternate ending where he winds up in prison. I thought the movie was going to have a far, far more grim ending than even that. Like,
1: mm. oh, the- yeah, because it could have been just a shootout on the road. I mean, and, and I would have believed it, frankly, if, if several officers are just, are you kidding? That carnage he was around? I mean, uh, people get shot over way less. So, so, yeah, if that had been an officer and the officer was frightened and couldn't see very well, is he holding a weapon? That's it for Chris. Um I'm glad it didn't go that
0: way. Yeah, the the moment Rod is revealed is I <laughs> – the cheer that went up in the auditorium yeah, when pretty, he's revealed was great. just the best sort of like – it's the best kind of moment you can have with an audience where everybody has the same feeling, the same emotion, like the same reaction at once. And that was definitely that's kind fun. of like a punching your fist in the air kind of moment, you know, that – no, even though this is kind of like a 70s horror movie, even though it has that feel that, you know, we actually get to have a happy ending and that it's not going to be yes. downbeat and depressing. And I loved the movie all the more for that.
1: Me too. And I'm glad you had cheers. I don't think we had cheers, but that's, yeah, that's rare.
0: I think one um, guy clapped, even. Not long, but I mean, there was like, there was there were hands put together for just a moment. It was It was great. That's
1: awesome. <laughs> you see? You see? So... So, so there it is. Uh, that's what you want. Oh, that's what I want, anyway. From a from a horror film, um, a lot of anyone scares, and then uh, some kind of redemption for somebody. Not everybody has to survive. Usually, they're these ensemble pieces, and a few of them are going to die. But hopefully, they died bravely and they didn't die stupidly. I hate that. <laughs> oh, I hate it when people die stupidly. Um, and this had none of that. This was this was just for me. Like you were saying, an instant classic from from beginning to end, I absolutely believe people will be watching it in in fifty years. I mean, I just watched Night of the Living Dead you know that was from nineteen sixty eight so so it'll be around and I think it it's it may not be able to have the exact kind of impact that a Night of the Living Dead had uh, actually creating the zombie so genre um, and the explosive sort of implied uh social issues in having a black lead and the kinds of things that were happening. And especially that ending where he gets shot by the, uh, the bunch of rednecks, um, intentional or not, that's pretty strong imagery in 1968. Um, so I don't think that that get out can have that kind of a reverberation, but I do think it's already changing conversations in Hollywood for sure about possibilities for telling black stories through the horror genre, uh, between Jordan Peele's company and he has a series I think he's working on at HBO and other artists. Cause I know a lot of other black horror writers and a lot of us have been trying to get in and trying to get our work done and studio executives didn't really have a, a language for what a black horror film might look like. And now they do. And that's huge. That is, you know, it, trust me when you're trying to sell to an executive, and they can't think of one successful example <laughs> of what you're trying to pitch. You're not going to make that sale no. uh, but but get get out makes it possible for other artists to come in and make that sale as horror lovers. there's nothing more exciting than the new and the fresh. Yes, when I saw the ring for the first time, it was on an old damaged video that was that was like third, fourth generation. So bad that we couldn't read the subtitles, oh, wow. so we couldn't understand a word the actors were saying, and it still scared the crap out of us because it was bringing a, a whole new visual sensibility to the storytelling. I mean, every frame was a way of showing a horror landscape that I hadn't seen done before, and that is that is exciting, and you know black Americans are not as different as you know people who are living in a different country. Hopefully, we're all living in the same country. But we do have a a very specific history, um, a very specific set of fears that I think can be considered universal in their specificity, which is what makes uh, Japanese horror so exciting. Uh, Small spaces and just uh, uh, objects coming from odd angles in the the camera, you know? Like in the garage, that kid's head... (laughs) Is like always somewhere you're never <laughs> expecting it to be, <laughs> and I think that you know for us it's ropes and Confederate flags and all these things that scare us um, can be can be sort of woven into these stories, and we have our own kind of aesthetic for for black horror that I think everyone can enjoy. And Get Out is a great example of it hopefully won't be the first, uh, last of its kind, rather, Um, and will set off a a movement that I hope to be a part of.
0: I can't think of a better place to stop than there. I think that's just about our time. Can I ask before we go, do you have any final parting thoughts on Get Out?
1: No, uh, that's it. I'm just looking forward to now, if Jordan Peele is listening, (laughs) won't we all be so lucky, I would love to have you come to my class, The Sunken Place, at UCLA, I'll be teaching uh, in September, and I will be tweeting out uh, some of the films we're watching and stories we're reading. A lot of which will be available online under the hashtag Black Horror. So look out for the Black Horror hashtag, and you can sort of kind of take my class.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on and for choosing this film to talk about. Now, uh, can I ask where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future?
1: Well, I am all over Twitter. At Tanana My name looks uh, intimidating, but it's just T A N A N A R I V as in Victor E. Last name Du, D U E, at Tanana Reeve du on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook. And for those of you who want to learn not just more about Black horror, but about a movement called Afrofuturism, which I would say includes projects like Black Panther, for example, check out my uh, Afrofuturism webinar at Afrofuturism Webinar com
0: excellent alright well thank you again so much for your time I really appreciate it thank you and
1: thank you for having me on
0: alright and thanks to all you listeners out there as always make certain to like subscribe share use the comment section rate and review us on iTunes and scream at us on Facebook and Twitter that's at Scream Addicts, and I am at Jinx1981 until next time folks thanks so much and have a great weekend
1: how you find me I'm TS motherfucking A we handle shit That's what we do. Consider this situation.
0: Fucking handle.